When Uber was getting started, the company had to solve many cutting-edge challenges for mobile. Uber's mobile platform needed to be safe and reliable, despite the inherent unreliability of flaky mobile networks. In addition, Uber dealt with unprecedented scale in terms of marketplace dynamics and overall usage. In this episode, we talk with Gurge Aroz. Gurge is the author of Building Mobile Apps at Scale, a book he wrote. He previously worked as an engineering manager at Uber, working on their payments experience platform as well as other mobile challenges. We discussed distributed systems, payments, and mobile technology, all the challenges that he overcame working at Uber. I hope you enjoy this episode. Gergay, welcome to the show. Great to be here. You have a diverse software engineering experience. I'd like to start at Uber. You worked at Uber for four and a half years, and you wrote a book about building mobile apps at scale. And I think of Uber as really an inflection point in how mobile software applications were developed because Uber faced so many unique challenges. There was just the the volume, the marketplace dynamics, the safety dynamics of the application, the, the geospatial element. Tell me about some of the novel problems, the novel engineering challenges that Uber faced in a mobile context. Yeah, so you do know a bunch about Uber. I mean, Uber started around right at the same time when modern smartphone apps started. The the iPhone was released in 2007. Uh, The first apps were in 2008. And I recall the first version of Uber was built by a team of contractors in 2010. And the first employee started to join, or at least the first mobile engineer joined in 2011. Uh, And then that's when it started. It was a first of its kind of this application. There were, of course, competitors. But one of the really interesting things that I found at Uber when I joined, obviously it has, it was, I'm not sure, uh, let me put it this way. I don't know any other company that has more mobile engineers than Uber has. When I joined, there were already maybe 300 iOS and Android engineers combined. And one of, one of the things, the challenges came, came from this angle. It was tooling. When, when I joined in 2016, we were rewriting the Uber app to using Swift. We rewrote it on, on Android as well as on iOS, but the iOS one was the more tricky part. And we just kept running into limitations. We were the biggest app who chose to onboard onto Swift. And we had a lot of pain points. There was a hacker news threat from someone who worked on a mobile platform team at the time. We ran into Swift limitations, binary size limitations. Build performance was a huge uh, part. And related to this, Uber established a mobile platform team very, very early on. If I recall correctly, the fifth or sixth or seventh mobile hire already founded this platform team. And and Uber had a large in-house team building everything that we needed to get things done because no vendors were available. So this went from build systems to experimentation, feature flags, analytics, crash reporting, everything. You name it, Uber built it themselves because we had to. So this was, I think, one of the biggest challenges. As the mobile space was, was moving really rapidly, we had to build our own tooling to keep up, to keep engineers productive. So the big engineering challenge is more about the tooling that you had to build around shipping these mobile apps, or were, were there some like app-specific mobile challenges? I would say the biggest challenge by far. So the, the part that I saw the most, obviously, there, there's going to be some part of, of how you build maps, 
I was not in that team. I worked on payments uh, and, and I built, I worked on features. But I would say by far the biggest challenge Uber faced was a combination of, of tooling and build performance. And this had to do with how many engineers worked on the same code base. The biggest pain point was we had 50 to 100 engineers working on the same code base, building independent features, and we kept stepping on each other's toes. So a team who was building a feature in India would make a modification in this massive file that controlled the the trip layout. When when you were on trip, they made a small change there. They shipped it, they tested it, it worked, and they broke another team's functionality in in Mexico, say. So this was, I think, the biggest challenge. Because, yes, there were some additional uh, things, you know, battery consumption, networking performance, some of those things. And we had dedicated teams who looked into that. So, like, those were all challenges. But from my perspective, from someone who built features, it was just too many cooks in one application because we needed to build so many features. And that's actually one of the biggest innovations, I think, that Uber has brought actually to the broader community, which is when we rolled rolled the Uber app, we built an architecture that actually is able to support hundreds of engineers working on the same code base called RIBS, which was a very opinionated architecture that defined how to build components, which then communicated in a way uh, using immutable state and kind of one directional data flows that you couldn't mess up some another team's components. And that architectural shift, I'm, we were the first app to do a massive rewrite after the company has had millions of users and, and billions in revenue, which is very unique. And no other app has done this at this scale that I'm aware of. So Facebook, Twitter, they, they, they're all kind of iterating on their same app. We had a fresh start about you know, five or six years after the business was started, which was a huge deal. We, we, we spent a whole year rewriting that app. Now, the time frame that you were at Uber was, let's see, so you started in 2016, I guess. So that was, uh, I guess Uber was still dealing with some of the, with the intensity. Like I remember I I did some early, sh- or the, some of the earliest shows of Software Engineering Daily were about Uber. And like I remember talking to Matt Ranney, who I think was the CTO or, or, or uh, chief architect or something of Uber. And my impression when I was talking to him was that there was just like a lot of sleepless nights and that it was just, it was hard to, to do the kind of planning that was necessary and to do the kind of like long-term thinking that was necessary sometimes just because there were so many day-to-day outages and day-to-day problems. Was that your experience as well? Did you have kind of a, a experience of, of the company just being in, kind of on fire all the time? Yeah, so I, I was a bit more than four years at Uber, and it felt to me like four distinctly different companies. In 2016, for, for about a year, it, it was that hustling startup where everything was on fire. I had meetings at 1 a.m. in Amsterdam, got woken up at the middle of the night. Our priorities changed last minute. We had to build this feature to get ahead of Lyft. The China business got shut down, and suddenly... Uh, we we had to build some some other things. It was go go go, and we we had no clue. I had no clue what we'll be doing in, in a month, even a week, sometimes even tomorrow. Let's just survive. It was that survival phase, and part of this was the app rewrite, which was a self inflicted pain point. We had an internal deadline to rewrite the app, and we pushed the company and and everyone very hard. It was all hands on deck. So. My story was I was an iOS engineer before Uber. I, I did everything before, but I was doing iOS as, as my latest stint. I interviewed at Uber. I thought I was interviewing for iOS, but they put me on a back-end loop. 
and I cleared it. So they offered me a backend job and it was senior engineer. So it was whatever. Two weeks before I started, my manager asked me, can you do Android? Because we really, really need Android engineers. And when I joined, it was all hands on deck. Anyone who was living and breathing and was able to do iOS or Android had to change over and do iOS and Android to rewrite this app. So it was that, that crazy phase. We also had to build tipping last minute in 2017. Uh, Lyft announced tipping. And until then, TK said, well, the two core things in Uber were we're never going to do cash or tipping. My team in Amsterdam, we did cash. So that, that was gone. But all of Uber was built around the notion we will never have tipping. So we never added any support in the data schemas anywhere. And then TK turned around and said in two months, like, he actually told us a date when we need to launch tipping because he's going to announce it. And it was that firefighting. And things calmed down afterwards. So like after 2017, the, the company shifted and, and it's, it's changed in many ways afterwards. But yes, for one year, it was that crazy go, go, go. Yeah, just madness. It, it felt like a proper startup that's on fire. Tell me a little bit more about what your book tries to encompass, the themes of building mobile apps at scale. So I started to write this book because Uber, I'm pretty sure, was the, is or was the top three apps in the world in terms of complexity. May that be lines of code, features, number of countries supported, like actually supported having features deliberately for countries. Uber was, was always built around cities. So Uber, not, like it, it has distinct features, sometimes just for cities. And even though this Uber was mobile first, I always felt that a lot of the engineers who are not mobile engineers, and the majority of the engineers were not mobile engineers at Uber. My estimate would be maybe 10% of engineers were mobile engineers, a lot of backend engineers, web engineers, data science, et cetera. I always felt that there was a bit of a assumption that mobile is simple, that, that the distributed systems, the backend systems are difficult. You know, We have the data centers, the outages, and a lot of the leadership team had a backend background and they understood exactly how those systems work, why they were difficult, why migrations take a lot of time. But mobile was a bit trivialized. I think, oh, okay, you know, we'll just ship it on mobile. It's, it's just a front end. How difficult can it be? And people just somehow started to, and I kept reminding people all the time on like, well, here's how we do experimentation and how mistakes are very, very costly on mobile. We had to ship everything behind feature flags. We had to be careful with rollouts. We needed to monitor things like crashes and, and a, a lot of other things, in-app push notifications. We, we had so many small things that all added up. And I found myself repeating again and again and, and sitting down with PMs and managers who did not do mobile before and explaining to them. And they always had the, ah, aha, I didn't realize mobile was this complicated. And I was joking around with my my product manager saying, you know, I, I should just write the 42 simple things that make mobile really difficult. And she was saying, yeah, you absolutely should. So I started to, to draft the blog post that I wanted to do either at first internally with an Uber, but I never finished it. Uh, and I had a draft tugged away somewhere and I decided to publish it after I left, left Uber to not leave it hanging. And I, I shared a draft on Twitter about the table of contents. And I had a huge influx of interest from People working at Amazon, Twitter, Tesla, Grab, all of these companies saying, hey, we have the exact same issues and can I review the draft because I, I want to see that. So that's how the book was born. It's I feel there's a divide between building simple and like normal apps, 
apps which are built by one or two engineers. They have their, your usual features. You have a lot of guidance there. So you just follow Apple and Android best practices. You use the libraries. You look at example GitHub projects, and you're fine. But as soon as you go into these apps that are built by teams of more than 20 engineers, where you have to support more than 20 countries, you have more than a million daily users, every single one of these companies reinvents the wheel. Like I've talked with a lot of these companies from Robinhood to Lyft, and they tend to build some of the similar internal systems because there's nothing out there. They also, and it's, it's a little bit, it feels there's a siloed nature in the industry right now. So hopefully this book breaks it down a little bit. And as part of what I did, I, I just, I collected the stuff that we did at Uber because I felt we were pretty much at the cutting edge of the industry. And I also reached out to people and, and did a lot of research on what are other companies doing. And a lot of times they're, they were doing similar things. And this is, this is what this book is. So it's a collection of the practices that most teams use and probably should use who are building large apps. And the difficulty with large apps is you really want to move fast. You want to ship these features quickly. But now you do have all these, this large number of people to, to serve. So you need to be reliable. You cannot introduce regressions. And it becomes difficult. I mean, this is not too dissimilar to how you build distributed and backend systems at, at scale with large, with, with large teams, except I, I feel that th- that domain is a lot more explored. There's a lot more literature on it. For example, Google used to publish a lot of the ways on how they do it. They, they introduce the terms SRE and, and, and so on. And on mobile, we have a lot less of this. And interesting enough, right as I published this book, the Mobile Native Foundation was founded by, I recall, Lyft, Uber, and a few other companies who are creating discussion forums in the open exactly on this topic as well. Which So that's also an awesome resource to, to go to and, figure, and to see how some of these other companies with, with larger teams are dealing and solving similar problems. Now, if you look at the backend world, you have community consolidation around Linux, obviously, and Kubernetes, and I guess you could even say AWS. In the world of mobile tooling, I don't get the sense, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't get the sense that there's the same element of community and like large-scale evangelism and knowledge sharing and it sounds like you're hinting at that. There's there's some siloing. If you you know you you go to Robinhood and they're building the same thing as if you go to Uber, they're building the same thing in terms of what needs to be done for building these large scale mobile apps. Am, am I am I understand what you're saying correctly? Absolutely. And and as part of writing this book, I did a lot of research. So I I've talked with a lot of people. A lot of people have reached out to me, and it's a hundred percent the case. The really interesting thing about this, I feel it goes back to the premise of my book. Most companies do not understand the complexity on mobile. A lot of companies are starting to get it that it's important. I've talked with many companies. I cannot say the names, but what a lot of companies are saying is they're seeing is their revenue stream is shifting towards mobile. So a Mac, a large bank, I can't tell their their name exactly, but they're they're seeing that the majority of their customers are now using iOS and Android. And the customers who do have the smartphone app installed are generating more profit. They have a lot less churn. So what this bank is doing, they're investing a lot more. They're retraining some of their web engineers to become mobile developers. And this is just not even a market-leading bank, but they have a mobile team of 130 native engineers, and they they need more. But there's still this notion from, 
from leadership and anyone who has not worked on these mobile apps, even web engineers, that, well, mobile should be pretty simple. And interesting enough, there are some vendors uh, who are building specialized tools. You know, there's CI vendors, there's crash reporting vendors, and some of these are, are venture funded. In fact, multiple of these are venture funded. But even the, 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 the VC firms are very skeptical of the size of the mobile market. I feel everyone is underestimating it, and, and we are in the middle of the shift. Uh, people are starting to use mobile as their primary um, you know, use for anything. There are those apps there. It's hard to break in, but, but those apps will, will keep living. And for the day-to-day convenience things and, and things that move money, mobile will become a lot more important. So I feel that I am very surprised that the community is not as strong, that the investment is not as big, that decision makers, I'm talking about CTOs, just continuously underestimate on both the complexity of mobile and also the impact of, of a strong mobile engineering team. Uh, the companies that invest, I'll tell you, some of the top com- top apps in, in, com- in the app store, Uber, Reddit, Pinterest, etc., they have dedicated teams of three to four engineers just working on app performance. And you might think, well, that's silly. No, it's not. They, they looked at the numbers, and they know that the, if they speed up, if they make some, their Android and their iOS apps load within you know half a second or, or one second for low-end devices or reduce latency and and startup time and networking by by milliseconds, they're generating a lot of revenue. It it pays for that team 10 times over. Most of the industry has no clue about this happening. So there is an invisible divide happening. Uh, Hopefully, this book will actually shed light on this a little bit, but it's it's not going to fix it. Can you talk a little bit more about the internal tooling that gets built around these these mobile mobile apps at scale like one thing that comes to mind is you know since you were since you were at uber well i, I guess this is a lift a lift tool but I, I remember talking to matt klein about envoy mobile which was like a you know this this whole uh, agent for for doing networking uh, like in mobile basically mobile networking uh they built this this really richly featured uh, networking tool called Envoy Mobile, and if, you know if people are curious about that, they can listen back to that episode. But I just love to get more of a, a a vision into that mobile tooling that was built at Uber. So, for better or worse, I guess worse for the community, but a lot of the tooling that Uber built is not open source mobile tooling. I'm talking about the the one thing that is open source is the Ribs architecture, and there are some other tools like Nano Nanoscope, which is a performance tool. There, there's also NolaWay, which is uh, a null checking tool. But at Uber, the whole stack, everything is internal tooling. So it starts with, as a mobile engineer, when, when you join the company, the first thing you do is you're going to check out the, the repository, make a change, make a simple text change or something, push that diff uh, because Uber uses Fabricator. And then you'll want to merge that into main and you're going to see the submit queue. So Uber built this internal tool, which is, the the agent that takes care of running all the tests, UI tests, unit tests, linting, etc., and merging it into master. And that might sound simple, but it's not because the problem that Uber faced very, very early is every build takes about 30 minutes to complete, mobile build, end-to-end, running all the UI tests. It's mostly the UI tests and, and snapshot tests that take a bunch of time. But Uber was already at the scale where we had every hour, we had maybe 10 or 20 or, or 30 merge requests, which meant that these needed to be run parallel. But if you run them 
well, a lot of times they will cause conflict. So you merge one and the other one was thrown back, which effectively meant that I, I was there in 2016. You had to wait three or four hours and restart your build three or four times just to be able to commit this. And so a team, the developer platform team, built this tool called SubmitQueue, which used this clever way of trying to predict conflicts between the changes going in. And they, they wrote a really cool paper about it. They used probability graphs. I, I don't know the exact term, but, but the paper has this. And they built a SubmitQueue, which was able to merge 90-something percent of the changes in, in one go. It just kind of figured it out. And this was essential for Uber to be able to scale builds, meaning support hundreds of people working on the same code base. Uber also moved to a monorepo really early. iOS and Android have their own monorepos, so all the mobile code is checked in there, and you build the separate apps from there. And at, at one point, Uber had a lot of apps, 10 or 12 different apps before, when, when there was still Jump and, and Uber Rush and a lot of other lines of businesses as well. Uh, also, there's a custom crash reporting tool. There's a custom sanity testing tool. There's a custom localization tool. There's a custom... Every, the experimentation and feature flag tool is, is, is also custom. And now, one of the reasons a lot of this is not open source because it's tightly integrated with each other. So when, when you're working with a localization tool, if you make a localization change, it will, and it will typically propagate across all of the properties. So the web, the backend, and so on. When you do an experiment uh, or you change an experiment, you can see all the experiments that are, are working at the same time. And the data science team can mine that data from anywhere within the company. So a lot of it is tightly coupled. And I think it goes back to the fact that Uber was and is mobile first. And they just built, or well, I guess we built while I was there, all this custom tooling that gives it an incredible edge in being able to run a very localized and detailed experiments. and and have control over the full stack. Still, I think, for example, the crash reporting function at Uber is more advanced than almost any vendor could offer. And that's one of the reasons they're not using vendors. Over time, that, that edge will disappear. And I'm sure Uber will start to use some third-party solutions. But it's, it's still there. And another, a very interesting thing on, on Uber, on you know why I always ask this, do, did we need to build this? But Uber is built around cities. And all the tooling is built around cities. You can narrow down to city level. There is no vendor in the world which supports city level targeting. And even if they do, they don't have the sophistication that Uber has to actually map exactly you know, based on IP or, or other, other device data. So that's another, another advantage that Uber, I think, does have compared to the, their competition. I'm not sure you know, exactly how Lyft is doing it. I'm, I'm pretty sure they have really good engineering. But some of the other competitors, may that be Bolt or, or Grab, they either need to build this themselves or try to use some vendor and kind of, you know, hack away with it. How did you manage the understanding of all the different tools that were available in the company and, and the relationships with those different tooling teams? Like, you're, you're an engineering manager for, for much of your time there, and I imagine there's a lot of communications overhead that goes into understanding what is available in the company, you know, especially if you're talking about like, there's like 10 different apps within the company. And it's probably, you know, jump, you know, the, maybe the jump app has crash reporting already implemented in it. And, you know, you, you don't know whether or not there's a there's a team that you can go to and, and ask for crash reporting. Uh, I, I just love to know the, the dynamics of 
because I, I I worked at Amazon for a while and and I just remember it's 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 so hard to know even what is available within a large company like that. So how do how does the tooling get indexed? How do you find out what is available? I mean, obviously, a lot of it was tribal knowledge to start with. Uh, some of the tools did link to a lot of the other tools. So I'll give you an example. The kind of heart and soul of Uber was what we called Metro, which is the visualization of the submit queue. So you can imagine if you type to metro.uber.com or the internal address, you were directed to a UI where you saw a build train. So it, it had, like say, the iOS rider app selected, and, and you saw that right now, the latest version is rolled out to 50% of people in the marketplace. And you could switch a toggle to look at the different versions where they are, and then you could switch the different apps uh, on where those are. And this app had kind of gates. So there, there was a, a square that showed the app store rollout, and before that, it was the internal rollout. And there's a bunch of arrows, which all, all were a step that needed to be, be green in order to proceed. So for example, in order to roll out an app, you needed to have the localization uh, done, all the UI testing needed to be done, no manual regressions, all hotfixes need, needed to be there, and so on. And all these arrows were a link to one of these tools. So you could take a look at the status of all the hotfixes. You could look take a look at all the crashes just by clicking through. So that was pretty clever. So it was somewhat in one place. And, and the other part was that Uber had one mobile platform team. It was a really big mobile platform team, but there was only one of them. So when engineers onboarded, that platform team maintained the wiki, and it did have a list up to, to these internal tools. And so I felt it wasn't that bad. It did take a while for to onboard at Uber. So... I had engineers on my team who joined that. They were amazing iOS and Android engineers outside of Uber. A lot of them Google developer experts, et cetera. And after, after a year, one of them came up to me and said, hey, hey, Gergay, let me tell you, I don't feel like I'm an Android engineer. I feel I'm a, I'm a ribs engineer and a, and a hotcakes engineer and like an Uber internal tools engineer. Because Uber, the platform team, I don't even know the details of how we did networking because there was a networking team in the mobile platform team who maybe something maybe they did something similar to, to, to Lyft's Envoy Mobile. They took care of the networking layer and we, you know, they optimized it, they measured it, they they spot, they sampled performance. It just worked. You just use that component, and we had a lot of these low-level things that you just used in the app, and the platform team made sure to optimize the hell out of it across all the different devices, OSs, et cetera. So in, in that sense, it worked pretty well. I feel it was a lot more chaotic before 2016, before the app rewrite. The app rewrite, I, I cannot stress enough how big of a cultural change rewriting the app was and introducing this concept of ribs, a router inter, in, in interactive builder, this, this, this concept of components. It was a very opinionated way to build software and it deliberately separated concerns. It separated teams very efficiently. If you wanted to change on something that was not within your team's component, you have to go through a lot of steps, including sometimes mobile platform reviews. And on one end, it frustrated engineers because you suddenly lost a lot of the freedom. You couldn't just change kind of core parts of the app or anything. On the other end, it reduced bugs, it, it improved stability. And it, it kind of confined teams into their own little space. And, and so the contracts were super clear. And this is the thing that I think a lot of, a lot of companies should take from Uber. And Uber had the opportunity to rewrite the, their app. And, and we, we made it very opinionated. We made the contracts super clear. I think that helped Uber sustain growth and, and being able to ship 
features without breaking things randomly and without having to rely on an insane amount of manual or automated tests. So you did have an insane amount of manual and automated tests. I don't think we had an insane amount. I think we had a good amount. Definitely, and now that I'm talking with other other teams, it, it seems some companies have, I think, more tests than Uber. I don't know the exact number that we have. We were big on unit testing. Everything was unit tested everywhere. Everything that was business logic. iOS had screenshot tests. Android did not have any screenshot tests, which was interesting. It's a very, very <laughs> divisive topic. We had very few end-to-end and UI tests. And we did have manual and exploratory tests that were run either by the teams initially and then later by uh, dedicated uh, people who are doing these things. What Uber was really good at, though, was monitoring and alerting. So we had a big beta program. Anytime we saw a regression, that was caught pretty early. And we had stage rollouts. And so the experimentation platform was, I think, first class uh, on, on mobile as well. So we caught most of the issues during either either testing or rollout. So it didn't get to customers or at least not many customers. Now, I've done a bunch of shows on Facebook. And one of the big frustrations at Facebook was that release engineering for mobile apps was terribly difficult. Now, I, I think things have changed since I was interviewing somebody about that basically how how Uber did or how mobile release engineering worked maybe like seven or 10 years ago. I imagine things have improved somewhat. Can you tell me the state of mobile release engineering? Are there good CICD patterns or like what do you do for high quality release engineering? I mean, I think it's improved to how much you can improve with the app store limitations being in place, it, it's still painful. And the release engineer's job is still terrible, I think. So it's, it's. I feel at this point, it's same old, same old. So from a developer's perspective, you, you make your change and every Monday or every certain day, I, I think they keep changing it. But at some point it was every Monday afternoon, there's a build cut. And you know that if you make that build cut, then you're, you'll be in the build candidate, which will go out in about two weeks. For for a week, this build cut bakes internally. So it goes into internal beta program. Employees had a, a large amount of Uber credits. So I, I think every employee would get credits for for 15 times the average order of it in your city. So you could order 15 eats or, or rides pretty much. But in return, you had to use the beta app. And so this would mean like that there would always be thousands of people testing it. And after a week, uh, if there was no regressions, this would go to the app store. Now there was always regression. So you typically, you know, if you're one of the teams who's, who got a regression somehow, you got a ticket assigned to you, which uh, you had to answer, does this need to be fixed right now? Because we caught this issue. It might be manual testing or localization or something else. And if so, you needed to do an out, you needed to either do a beta fix, which meant that you had more than 72 hours until the final build cut. Or if it was less than, I think, 72 hours of an alpha fix. And these had... As a manager, I had to approve these fixes. So we always decided, is it worth doing a fix or do we just turn off this feature or not roll it out? And, and then once this cut was done, then the rollout started in the App Store. In, in the Google Play Store, there will be a stage rollout. In, in the App Store, you can't really do that. So it was just replaced and, and we saw the uptake of the, the latest app. The frustration with this, that will not go away until... We, you know, we, we can release it instantaneously or, or Apple changes its policies that if you made a change, it took about three weeks, two to three weeks to go into production, which meant that you knew that you couldn't 
you couldn't just fix things magically in the app, which meant that every single change needed to be behind the feature flag, which also meant that the app was polluted with feature flags that were sometimes just left in there. Now, one thing that every single company, including Uber, realizes, well, that's not great. Could we just ship instantaneously like in the web? And following Apple and Android guidelines, you cannot ship business logic to the app, but you know you could embed web pages or you could do a backend driven parts of the application where you send some sort of JSON or XML or metadata. And Uber did this as well. We built an, an internal tool, which doesn't come with a whole set of different drawbacks, but I feel the industry is working around that. At least these apps are, are trying to work around the fact that Apple is gatekeeping, that they, they want to check every single thing that goes into the app. And it's kind of artificially limiting your ability to ship functionality or, or sometimes even fix things. But I think it's been accepted. We know how it is. And I felt that Uber after after a few years, it's just everyone knows what to expect. Everyone knows how things will be going out. And this is also why if you if you follow Jane, I think her, her name is, is, is Jane Wong. There's a, she's a, I guess, researcher on, in, in, on her own time. She has a hobby of opening up the apps that are in the app store and looking for the feature flags, turning them on and uh, tweeting out features that are going to be shipped at every single app <laughs> because the whole industry works like this. We, we ship things behind feature flags. We don't turn them on until we're, we're very certain that they work. So actually a lot of the future functionality for Uber, for Facebook, for Twitter, it's in the app, uh, except it's a bit tricky to, to look at it. <laughs> but some people look at it already. <laughs> Do you have any general advice for people out there who are managing mobile teams. So just, you know, obviously there's there's a general management advice, but I wonder if you have domain-specific mobile engineering management advice. What I have benefited a lot from is, is two things. One is get your hands dirty. So if you're managing a mobile team, understand exactly how the chain works. I benefited greatly from, I was a mobile engineer for, for six months. Uh, I was an Android slash iOS engineer. On paper, I was an Android engineer, but I also, I was familiar with iOS. And so I, I pushed code for, for six months. I, I wrote the RFCs. I made the code changes, reviewed the code. I fought with the tooling. Uh, I, I made hot fixes. I did all these things. I, I, saw, my cha- I saw, saw how long my changes to go out. I, I monitored the, the feature. I think as a, as a mobile manager, you need to get your, your hands dirty on, on how these things work. Either just ship a feature into production or you can just observe, but you should know exactly what your team is working on, what, what tools they use, what the frustrations are. So have an ear on the ground. That's the first advice. The second advice is don't, don't just look at mobile as a silo. I feel the the mistake that a lot of people do, especially if they're long-time mobile engineers, a lot of people have been developing iOS or Android apps since you know 10 years now, and they're on paper senior engineers, but they never looked at the backend or, or the web. Because I feel mobile is, is not done in isolation. There are very real trade-offs. Uh, and you should ask yourself when you're building a mobile functionality of, well, should we experiment on this with on the mobile, or should we maybe ship up ship it on the mobile web where we might have fewer uh, customers, but we might be able to, to ship things faster. At Uber, I created uh, the first, I was on the payments engineering group. My, my team built pretty much everything that is in the mobile app that has to do with paying 
things in the rider app later in the driver app and, and, and some in and, and some part of the eats app and I, I founded the the same web team where we started to do web payments we consolidated before that there was no team who was doing payments on the web and, and we did that and it was really I think enlightening to see how the web was so much faster in so many ways obviously a lot more of our customers were on on mobile but this was very interesting. And, and all the teams who reported to me, iOS, Android, and web engineers, they were on the same page. So I guess maybe my third advice is don't accept having silos between Android, iOS, and even potentially the web. These teams' customers don't care. They, they expect the same thing to work in similar ways. The backend team ideally shouldn't really care if it's Android or iOS or web. They, they should work on APIs that hopefully work for most of them, although mobile has different things. So if you do have silos between iOS and Android, start to break them down in, in different ways. One thing that Uber was really good about and our architecture RIPS really helped is iOS and Android always work together. So on every feature, we had an iOS and an Android engineer or two of them, and they just collaborated. They shipped at the same time. They reviewed each other's code because it turns out reviewing Swift code or, or Java code and later Kotlin code is not that big of a deal. And sometimes they also wrote, they, sometimes they switched platforms and, and they just wrote code on the other platform. So I would say don't put yourself in a silo. What was the biggest engineering problem you remember having to solve while you were at Uber? The biggest engineering problem. So there there was, okay, I'll, I'll tell you the, the biggest one. This was when we started to, when I took over the rider payments team. So our, our team was building everything in the rider app that was payments. This was about 13 or 14 different ways to pay from credit cards to PayPal, Apple Pay, Google Pay. Those are the ones everyone knows to Paytm, GeoPay, Alipay, regional. Uh, th- these are basically regional payments that were either in one country or in one region. And we built this in a way that we tried to build it in a bit of a reusable way so that later someone else could use it. But our only customer was the rider app. And sure enough, as uh, Eats started to grow, uh, Uber Eats was another startup within a startup. Uber, I, I like to think of Uber as this common collection of startups. They they wanted to move fast, and they came to us saying, "Hey, can can we use your credit card implementation?" And we're like, "Oh, sure. Here's this library. We just need to make these small changes to it. It'll probably take a month." They were like, "Uh, okay." And they never came back. They built their own implementation because they were like, "A month is too 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 long. They needed to move fast." And Fast forward 12 months later, Uber Eats had their own implementation of all the different payment methods that we had, and it was taking them a lot of maintenance just to keep up. Uh, We had some uh, compliance changes, and France decided that whenever you pay with a credit card, you have to have a special checkbox for this or that, and now the Eats team had to build that instead of shipping their features. So the request that we started to get is, could we just not have one library? Like, Could we have a Stripe like library that you integrate, but with an Uber, because we, we couldn't use Stripe for, for like various reasons, for example, because we're using competing payment methods with Stripe. But the idea was, could we have a library? That's a payments library that you just drop in an SDK at Uber, internal like Stripe SDK with an Uber, you know, like a payments SDK. And this turned out to be such a big challenge because there were so many teams using it. Everything was changing all the time. Everyone wanted to get different things done. The East team just wanted to move fast. We had tons of hacks inside. And it turns out that when you build a library that you think is going to be reusable, but you don't know who's going to use it, it's not reusable. So this, what we call payments framework that that we built for the Rider app, it was completely not usable for, or it was very difficult to use for Eats or for the driver team or later for the the Lime team, et cetera. So 
it was a humbling moment because like I used to be very much of this couch art architect. When you read about a company, you know, doing something seemingly silly, I don't know, Microsoft uh, delaying Windows Vista by a year and it's still a terrible product, right? You're, you're just there saying, oh, you know, they just didn't know what they were doing. And here I was where if anyone else from the outside said, well, huh, Uber can't even create like one payments library, like how incompetent the people must be. That's what I, I would have said, but it was not true. We were very competent, except it's when you're in a large organization, you have a lot of different teams who are shipping all sorts of different things. It's just hard to, to build something that keeps changing. And we pulled it off in the end. It actually took a few engineers to, to step up uh, and just make some opinionated decisions uh, to go in and integrate uh, this library. And the biggest problem, the, the reason we couldn't really pull this up quickly is a lot of money was dependent on this, specifically $65 billion dependent on this thing working at all the time. We couldn't break it. And that was the biggest barrier. It was payments, right? You you cannot break payments. And if you do, it's very expensive. I, I've seen outages where it costs the company millions of dollars and you just don't want to do that. So this makes it even more difficult. So so yeah, it was it was just very humbling to see how difficult some seemingly simple things. You know, you just say a uh, payments SDK. How difficult could it be? And it was it was difficult. <laughs> and, and by the way, the engineering part was not the difficult. It was more of the organization, the APIs, the migrations, and and doing it without impacting any customers. And the customers didn't see anything of this. That's a really interesting story. As we begin to to wind down, I'd I'd love to know any like larger scale reflections on your time at Uber and and how it compared to the other companies you've worked at. You you spent a lot of time at Skype, Skyscanner, and you've worked at uh, J.P. Morgan. I I just love to to know your reflections on Uber relative to the rest of the industry. For for me, Uber was a really awesome experience. It, it was by far the most fun that I've had and the most challenges and the most professional growth. Uh, I, I spent four years there. I, I feel as if it would have been 10 in terms of learning wise. And I, I've had many learnings, but some of the key things that stand out is one is the, the concept of ownership. When I joined Uber, Uber had this cultural value. They have 14, but one really stood out, which, is, which was be an owner, not a renter. And as soon as I entered the company, this was established already. People around me were, were celebrating. Someone did something. It was basically, if you see a problem, don't complain, fix it. And people did it all the time and, and they were being celebrated for it. So like teammates would say like, oh, great job being an owner, not a renter. And it was magical because Uber was held together by duct tape. Like, like seriously, I was shocked at how bad things were. But instead of people complaining, they kept fixing it. And it was very empowering. I saw very junior engineers join, you know, out of college or like one or two years of experience and two years of doing being an owner, not a renter, keeping fixing things, not accepting that things are broken, going over to the team, committing into their code base. They become really experienced engineers with great judgment. And this is an environment which I would want to recreate wherever I go. And I think I think it made a huge difference. It's very different. Like I don't think you can. It's hard to transform a company that doesn't have this in their DNA. But Uber did have this. The other part was the transparency and some of the interesting processes that Uber put in place really early. Uber didn't have many processes. 
but one of the main processes that that was in place from the early days was RFCs. So whenever a uh, request for comments, whenever you wanted to build a new feature, service, or, or modify something that was not trivial, you know, it, it took more than maybe a month of work, you wrote this document and you sent it out to pretty much all of engineering. There was an email list where everyone could subscribe and everyone was subscribed. And I would have thought this would never work. It worked beautifully. It worked really well until maybe two or 3,000 engineers. Uh, people chimed in uh, who were interested in this. It created transparency. And it also forced people to do some planning up front, which I think engineers are really bad at doing. You know, you just have something in your head and you start coding and then you go back and erase two weeks of work. So, so this was an interesting one. And the final part was I, I talked with the first five engineers at Uber. I interviewed them because I wanted to write an article. I never wrote that article. But it was incredible to me how those first few hires shaped the culture. So it turns out that this RFC process was introduced by, I think, employee number three or four, who was a really junior guy with like one or two years of experience, but he read all these books about architecture, and he had this idea that we should just write things down, and he just convinced the team when there were three or four people, and from there on, it was a thing. One of the early, the first mobile engineering manager was actually an Apple employee who saw the Uber app, and he liked it. He started to use it, but he was pissed off on how the cars would not go on the on the street, they would just go over the, you know, it was going in a line. And he, he came over to, because I think he was working next door, he came over and he talked with TK saying, hey, I, I want you to fix this. So they had some really good leadership join early on as well. And those, like, I think a lot of the Uber culture might have been shaped by some of these people just kind of doing things early on and it just stuck, uh, which is very, very interesting. I almost feel it was a bit random that some of these things happened the way they, they happened. So, so yeah, those, those are the, the, the key learning. Oh, ownership is, is such, if a company can keep on the, this feeling that people feel that they're owners and, and they can change things, it goes such a long way. And uh, yeah, the, these planning documents, they do work, especially when you start early on and it, it becomes the DNA of the company. Awesome. Well, Gurge, anything else you want to add before we close off? I just just one small plug for, for this book that I wrote. It's actually a completely free book for until the 31st of May. So it's the full book with everything in it. Uh, and it's it's because I was able to do this deal where I secured some sponsors so, to get reach. So if you're interested in mobile apps in any point and you want to get a read of it, grab it while it's free. Later, you can also get it on, on Amazon and other places. And yeah, if you'll have any feedback on mobile apps at scale, I'd love to hear from people. My, You can find my email and, and contacts on my webpage. And I also write a blog called The Pragmatic Engineer, where I share some of my ideas about engineering, about RFCs. I wrote an article on that. So just check it out if, if uh, you're interested in, in reading some of these thoughts. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was great.